everyone, this is Movies as Mirrors, where each week we talk about a movie that is chosen by our guest that reflects their experience as a part of some marginalized community. We hope that through our conversations we can explore how pop culture can be a way to learn more about each other, about some pressing social issue, so that we can do better and make the world better in some small way. I'm Max Johnson. I'm Benjamin Thevenin. I'm Sharon Swenson. Great, and today we are talking about the Guillermo del Toro movie, Hellboy. So Hellboy is a 2004 film written and directed by Guillermo del Toro. It's adapted from the comic series by Mike Mignola. And the story follows the cigar-chomping, demon-esque superhero Hellboy, played by Ron Perlman, who, as a baby, uh, escaped a portal from another dimension during World War II and has since been raised by Dr. Broom, played by John Hurt, um, an expert in the paranormal, to fight monsters as part of the Bureau of Paranormal Defense. Now, in this particular adventure, Hellboy teams up with Fishman Abe Sapien, played by Doug Jones and voiced by David Hyde Pierce, Firestarter Liz Sherman, played by Selma Blair, FBI Director Tom Manning, played by Jeffrey Tambor, among others. And they're trying to prevent the Russian mystic Rasputin and his team of cronies and monsters from ushering in the end of the world. Now, this proves tricky, in part because Hellboy is a somewhat of a reluctant superhero. He's busy trying to live as normal of a life as he can, winning back his girlfriend and living up to his father's expectations. But the real complication is that Hellboy and his big stone right hand of doom is the key to unlocking the portal that causes the end of the world. Welcome to the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense. There are things that go bump in the night, Agent Myers. And we are the ones who bump back. Hellboy. Well, come on in. Meet the rest of the family. Abraham Sapien. Liz Sherman. It's a beautiful name. Don't worry, Boy Scout. She'll take care of you. These freaks. They give me the creeps. Really? Every time the media gets a look at him, they come running to me. I'm running out of lies. If there's trouble, all us freaks have is each other. So, Sharon, why don't we start with you just telling us a little bit about yourself and about your experience with this movie. Well, I grew up in southern Utah in a small town. Not extremely small. It seems small now. And I grew up in the 1950s and the 60s in that area and uh, loved school. When I, I didn't really see a lot of films. We were kind of deprived. And so when I hit 20 and hit art films in Salt Lake City, it was like a new world. <laughs> but uh, I loved being a Mormon in a small town. I, I loved the experience of knowing my neighbors and you could go any place in town and virtually know somebody, mm -hmm. going through the school with the same people. But I began um, feeling some discomfort that, that maybe I didn't fit in this small town that was really filled with values um, 1950s. So it's post-war, you've got the happy housewife, the hardworking parent, it's Donna Reed, and mm -hmm. you know, it's a very typical way of looking at the world. And it sort of filters through uh, and becomes wedded with your religious instruction. So there becomes a model and expectation set up. So I was there until I was 20, and then I moved to Salt Lake 
and haven't left it. So, you know, 50 years later, uh-huh. I'm still in Salt Lake and loving it and have never forgotten and still feel attached to my my growing up time. But I remember, I didn't see Hellboy until maybe eight years ago. I was late coming to it. And I remember loving it. Part of it's visually so pretty. Mm-hmm. Umbrellas in the rain and, you know, great. And Ron Perlman's hilarious. He's great. Ron Perlman, he, he, he chews the cigar and he goes in and he's got this big overcoat like a rider would wear in the Western. Mm-hmm. And his green tail hangs out. Yep. And then his horns grow. He keeps, you know, taking his horns, filing them down so they don't grow so much. And he loves pancakes and kittens, but he doesn't love to eat kittens. That's what I know <laughs> I love. I love this character. So what I loved about that experience, it, it kept being a, attractive to me. And I was working on a book about hell and images of hell. So I started uh, thinking about Hellboy and had the chance to say, why do I like this? And part of its appeal for me is that he doesn't belong. Hellboy does not belong. He doesn't belong to Broom's world. The and you know he's he's been adopted and raised, eating candy bars. You know, being loved and found a home, ironically in this paranormal institution with the FBI. But he has this ability that he somehow keeps repudiating, which is violence and a desire to to be violent in a way that's hard to contain. Mm-hmm. And you start seeing the beginning, people making comments, no, I think he's too well. It's kind of like the thing, you know, in the Avengers where someone keeps getting fed up and saying, I don't think we should be following these rules. Yeah. He sort of is doing that kind of thing. And I realized um, he doesn't want to disavow either part of himself. When Rasputin presents him with his identity of what's possible for him and being told, it's like Harry Potter discovering he's a wizard and a chosen wizard, he will unlock this a passageway that will bring in this new dimension and he will rule in it. He will be, the apocalypse will be added by him. And I realized, um, I feel like the intersection between the sweetness and the conventionality of my 50s upbringing didn't quite fit with parts of my aims to read the New Yorker. <laughs> we read the Time magazine. We were not we were not rubes. But also to to speak directly and possibly well, I perceived it as rudely to be a straight speaker. Yeah. He was a straight hitter. Yeah. But I realized that um, at some point you kind of have to choose. And in my life I chose, in my marriage, I chose to stay inside my religious value system and my partner chose to leave it. And I think understanding um, how hard it was to not quite fit in either system. Yeah, yeah, like I, uh, uh, in preparation for this episode, I read some of the chapter that you published on Hellboy. Yeah. And I was pretty, uh, I, I was interested in this, this emphasis you place on Hellboy is this kind of interesting hybrid character that he's a, I think you describe him as like a guardian demon. He is. This like demonic savior that uh, speaks to like 
the complexities of any really anyone's experience living in today's society in which you have these kind of competing cultures and value systems and you're forced to kind of figure out like where's my place in this but it sounds like um even more than maybe me or max that like you you kind of found yourself at this like kind of interesting intersection where you had kind of rural values and mormon values and like values placed on you from like the culture especially of the 50s on like women and then you've find yourself in as an individual is like being outspoken and i I mean i've known you to like promote uh like feminist ideas and stuff like that and and that the the tension between these different forces like that's what you really found in hellboy well and i think i think part of it too is that his ability to be useful and preserve the values that he's inherited is his willingness to use his demonic strength Mm -hmm. it is his ability to destroy monsters that makes him able to save the world. He has a choice. And for me, sort of understanding that the qualities I have that in some ways I felt you kind of keep to the edge, you, you make you make some choices. And I, I'm not talking about, um, well, it's hard for me to perceive. I know when I first, first started working... Um, Teaching, it was in a time when feminism was a really heated, uh, polarizing issue. And I think any discussion of gender sort of triggered a lot of responses that were like my own experience growing up. Mm -hmm. So the sense was you can't speak of those things. There are certain things you didn't speak of. And the fact is, I love film. I love popular culture. Uh, haven't gone to Game of Thrones. I drew the line. <laughs> but it, it is something that I really find meaningful to me. And I, I find that if you see that, if you view that, and you talk about what you see about families, about gender roles, less so now than maybe earlier in my life, you don't fit. Yeah. And yet you don't fit over in the camp where there's this full embrace of moving forward on a, a you know a concerted effort and campaign. So for me it was understanding what I had could be valuable to the to the system that I grew up with and loved mm-hmm. that I didn't have to lose part of myself. And I think that that intersection for me education became a really big deal. I got a doctorate in my family no one gets a doctorate. Yeah. Um the, why would you do that? And, and sometimes, Benjamin, as you know, sometimes we say, why would I do that? But the truth is, I, I began finding that at family reunions, it was somewhat uncomfortable when people said, what are you doing? Well, I'm thinking about Mikhail Bakhtin and dialogic space. What do you think about Russian novels? And um, it hurt people. They, did, mm-hmm. they didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. So the struggle that Hellboy has he he gets to do the hero's journey. He's got the mentor. He's got the sidekick. He's got the prize, who's wonderful. Uh, Liz Sherman, the fire girl, is is amazing, and they're an amazing couple. I was actually kind of pleased that she was a real. You know, I hadn't watched this in a while, and I think we're used to all the Marvel movies and the efforts that they're trying to make to have more central female characters in their stories right. and stuff like that. And uh, Liz Sherman is like kind of like a surprising. Real oh, person she here is, she is that her, happens to be female. She is her is own person, powerful. and yeah. her journey, her difficulty is the same thing. She has a gift mm-hmm. that many people condemn, and she wants to reject her gift and reject the people 
who are associated with it. And it seems to me that is one of the struggles. Uh, when you start individuating yourself from your family and the systems you grow up in, I think you initially sort of pick a system that, that pushes against the, where you've been. But finding where you fit in a, in a place that hinges, that somehow lets you be who you are, encompassing the things you can bring into the culture, and do something within that system yeah. is, is really satisfying. It would be better, I think, if I had a big red hammer at times. You know, sometimes you just want to hammer something to make a point. Mm -hmm. And I've never felt that I could be that vehement. But I Well, I sat in faculty meetings with you, and I felt <laughs> like sometimes you might have had that big red hand. I mean, because, uh, I don't know, like, it's no mystery that Mormon culture in general... Higher academic, you know, academia certainly, right? Um, uh, and then BYU particularly can can really, I don't know, has a history of like stifling ideas of uh, coming from women in, in particular, right? And so I think that you, I, I sat through many a meeting in which maybe metaphorically you wielded a big red hand as a means of kind of correcting that tendency within these institutions and cultures, right? And so well, I'm interested that you say that, and I'm also interested. My experience is that I can't stop some of the things I say <laughs> <laughs> if I'm in a meeting and things are moving along. And, yeah, it's been stressful. It's very hard um, to to say I belong here and I want to be here and I was really hoping that the big red hand hadn't come out too much. But clearly you've observed it. So it I think it's have... a good thing. Well, I mean, what you're saying is that his, uh, part of Hellboy's strength is not just his humanity. His, it's like his demon qualities. And you're saying, like, you know, you, uh, whatever, pushing, resisting the institution or the dominant culture, like, is some of the strength. And I think, so I think that's a good thing that we saw that right Well, thanks. My, my feeling is that, that one of the things you realize when key things that matter to you and a certain kind of spirituality and a certain kind of connection makes you very sympathetic to underdogs. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I felt is that we inadvertently at times um, saw our students as objects to move through the system and we focused more about the system than we did about the students and how their learning could be facilitated. And I think in some ways I might have been happier if I hadn't gone into academics, except I love it. So mm -hmm. I couldn't, the play, um, talking with people, one of the things I miss most about BYU now are, are faculty meetings and meetings in the hall where we got a chance to just throw things around and talk about ideas and yeah. the craziness. Buckaroo Bonsai, I remember when Tom Russell found Buckaroo Bonsai. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? It's very old popular culture now. <laughs> okay. uh, but I think there's a sense, there's a sense of um, working with people who are lively and engaged and whose lives are about not just learning about films and media, but engaged in producing it mm -hmm. and finding ways to help other people produce it. And it's this really generative process. So it always felt to me more like the, the red hand should be used to move things out of the way. And sometimes, quite honestly, I tried to move it out so other faculty, other people could say, well, here's what I think should happen. Mm -hmm. Some people don't have a voice. And that's one advantage to being perceived as a kind of outspoken, almost rude person, is you can plow in 
and open things up for someone else. Yeah. I think that one of the things that I like about Hellboy, and, and part of it are its roots in the graphic novel mm-hmm. and in the way Ron Perlman is presented. And Del Toro is a dreamer. He's got his whole clockwork thing going on there. Yeah. He's got all these things to it. But you don't say, oh, my gosh, this is like To Kill a Mockingbird. Someone's going to have to make a choice about who to defend. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not there. It's not there at all. You can watch it consciously and be carried along by the fun of it. I personally don't like scary films. There's a horror dimension here, but underneath it, there are these issues of who am I? What should I do? And and I find that um, both um, Liz Sherman and Hellboy are processing that and struggling with it and moving through stages. It's not like, oh, okay, we come up to the big battle and now I will choose. There is a big battle, but I think the choices that come along the way. And I love the other characters that sort of come along with it. Uh, Rasputin, oh my gosh, and there's Ilsa. Yeah, that was it's, a surprise thing. There's the historical figure of Rasputin as, a, as the villain. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And, yeah. and Ilsa, his, his uh, partner in is crime. She, is she a historical figure also? Or? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think, she's the, uh, the obligatory femme fatale Nazi slash I think we Russian. got that from uh, the last um, Indiana Jones movie. He had kind of a blonde SS yeah, that's right. agent. Uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. And, that, and in this case... SS Russian, which complicates it. But I think the, for me, the most powerful films can be those that I watch and I, I find them amusing or engaging on a certain level. But it's when I start thinking about them or having dreams that include scenes from them. Do you do that, Max? Do you ever have dreams that have movie scenes? You know? <laughs> No. Oh, you Dra- make your own films. Max's Waking Life is a David Lynch film. So <laughs> just to give you guys some insight into uh, Max's personal aesthetic as an art- artist. Ah, well then, <laughs> you're living you're living a dream in the film. Yeah. But I do find that interesting when uh, you're talking about how, you know, a lot of these popular fun films, the films that carry you with fun and then leave you... Um, with these thoughts and these questions and these dreams, things like I think it's like, like Mad Max Fury Road also comes to mind, mm-hmm. where that has yes. nothing to do with a lot of deep uh, gender issues. What's discussing, but on the surface, it's very just you know high octane mm-hmm. action and fun. What do you think the benefit is if you're if you're trying to discuss these issues or you're trying to represent? Um, different marginalized communities. What's the benefit of putting it into a movie like Hellboy or Mad Max Fury Road, where it has a very genre aesthetic and genre conventions, instead of a more art film where these topics are usually discussed? One of the difficulties I think in in uh, discussing in higher education and talking about film and popular culture there is that you're addressing a relatively small group of people. You know, most most scholars write to the other scholars yeah. in the country and to their students, and and so that you have your ideas can have some purchase. If you're teaches, teaching, that's a lot more because your students can pick them up and embroider them and run with them. I learned more from my students. I, I'm, a, I'm just astonished by the things that I learned, and I miss that part. But a popular film, a genre film, slips under the guard. It's it works on people if it's beautifully done, and I'm. I think. I think. I think Hellboy is beautifully done, cinematically, visually. I think it's done, so that you have the pleasures of it, 
but it's giving you more nutrition than you may mm-hmm. have realized. More food for thought or more places to go. And I don't think people walk around saying, you know, I feel kind of like Hellboy. What should I do? But you become aware that there are people who have abilities that estranges them from the people they love and want to be with. And that their struggle is to say, how can I be who I am and still connect with people who are so radically different from me? And it seems pretty obvious if you're Hellboy, you're radically different from the human race. But I think for me, that's part of it, is is just understanding how that works. I think it's important to discuss these things because I would say, you know, regardless of how beautiful the movie is, there are these lessons or at least these, uh, I guess, observations that can be extracted from these popular popcorn movies. You Mm -hmm. can look at anything and then learn a little bit about your society from it. And I think identifying these these, uh, super beautiful, well-done ones will help you look at any movie that's, uh, you know, received funding because it says something about uh, an issue if it receiving a funding to have a million, couple million dollar movie made about it. So yeah, yeah, and I think like things like Hellboy or Mad Max, Fury Road, or I, I was like I was thinking, you know, some of the superhero movies of now, like Black Panther or Wonder mm-hmm. Woman, that attempt to do something similar. Um, I think it's a delicate balance, and it's nice when they're able to kind of pull that off, providing entertainment and also like providing some kind of social commentary. Well, it's interesting because I would feel like I, I'd say Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel and Black Panther. This isn't a bad thing about, but they definitely are trying to do that. They're yeah, it's more apparent, right? Yeah, they're trying to make some sort of social statement or um, get across uh, a progressive agenda, which is good. Which is a good thing. Yeah. But how it, many but, people who watch those films would say, "Yeah, that had a progressive agenda"? Uh, I don't. I don't know. But but the point I was trying to make was that Hellboy is interesting because it doesn't have that at all I would say well it's like asking more kind of fundamental existential questions yeah. rather than like kind of signaling that they're interested in gender politics or racial politics or something mm-hmm. like that and yeah that is I, I mean I do want to pose that question to like listeners is that um, what are some examples of like popular films popular movies that you feel like are entertaining but that also simultaneously kind of speak to some of existential questions that you face or social issues that yeah, you're affected by um, that have pulled off that kind of delicate balance that we're talking about. Sharon, uh, we're going to wrap up pretty soon, but I wanted to ask like maybe another question or two. I'm I'm going to quote you here. I read this other article that you wrote about uh, condemned by my own words, active spectatorship, and it was actually it was really interesting because you're using the metaphor of the mirror, movies and mirrors, just like we are in the podcast. Um, you write, uh, we can use film self reflectively as part of our consideration of who we are who we would like to be, and what may be blocking us. Most of us have had the experience of standing in a space between two large mirrors and create, that create a myriad of reflections where we see ourselves again and again and again. A cinematic reflection may function as a type, kind of double mirror that replicates us in a manner that lets us see not only what we are, but also what we might become. And I'm curious about that. Like We actually kind of talked about that a little bit last in our last episode, Natalie King and us and Max and I were talking about a fantastic woman and Natalie mentioned just kind of how uh, the positive portrayal of the main character Marina as being confident as like a trans woman um, and responding to kind of the criticisms and the abuse of from those around her so with such strength uh, 
not only like kind of reflected the her Natalie's experiences, but also kind of gave her strength to enter into the world with like renewed confidence. And I'm curious, like, does Hellboy do that for you? Are there other like examples from film that like not only do you see yourself in, but like that you kind of aspire to the reflection that you see um, in the movie? I think that um, contemporary film offers such richness as, as the film Natalie's talking about and that experience. For me, the most important thing that happens is thinking about a film afterward. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was lucky to be in a faculty and with students who like to talk about film. But I think um, there's a more complex process than simple aspiration. I want to be like that person. What you see on screen, if you're lucky, is how people do that. How do they... Um, this is strange, but there was about 30 people who, when Wonder Woman came out, told me that they were no longer body shamed, that they wanted to be tall, and they would accept their weight, mm-hmm. and they felt like they could inhabit their bodies in the world in a very different way. And a couple of them said, yeah, I think it's like Wonder Woman. And I'm going, okay. Uh, that is a very interesting consequence that goes far beyond saying, here's a powerful woman who uses power in these ways and relates to people in these ways. It simply says, someone exists in the world in this way. Mm-hmm. And I can do that too. Yeah. So it goes beyond some, because you could, I think I've probably read or heard an argument that says, oh, like, uh, that has problematized the representation of Wonder Woman. It's like, oh, that she's, her body is too ideal or something. Right. But you're saying that, like, actually, it's not just about aspiring to see to be what you see on screen. It's about kind of actively making meaning and finding out how it can serve you and then like kind of acting upon right. that. So there's a mode of being in the world. And for me, it was Donna Reed and Leave it to Beaver, you know, the good woman. She cooked with an apron and high heels on. And there it was. And it, you got it in little doses every week. But I think there's a sense of watching someone move confidently through their life. And I do believe it's not necessarily gender blind. I think that there are times you can identify with a male character. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something about saying, look how that person made a choice or acted that way or, quite honestly, didn't give up. Yeah. I think that's one of the hard things is not to get discouraged if you find you want to be a certain way and you're not able to. Great. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, Sharon. Uh, it was a great conversation. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. That was nice. Thanks, Max. And tune in next week when we're going to be talking to Jesse Baird about the movie It Follows and Cycles of Poverty. Uh, thanks to Aiden Bay for writing our intro music. And if you have listener feedback, uh, if you want to respond to our conversations, the questions that we ask, uh, you can email us at moviesasmirrors at gmail.com. That's moviesasmirrors at gmail.com.